We will be in chapter 3, starting in verse 7, all the way to 19. Please stand there, indicating you're there. We're going to honor God's word by standing and reading together. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed so many that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave, gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are here this morning because of your kindness and your grace toward us. God, we're here because you've drawn us to this church to be with one another, to be in your presence, and to hear the preaching and the teaching of your holy word. God, we thank you for your grace in our lives. Some of us here this morning are probably more aware of your grace in our lives than others. But as we're even going to reflect on in the sermon today, God, your grace is operating in every single person's life. You are a gracious and a kind and a benevolent God. So Lord, today we come before you and we ask that you, in your grace, would use your word to speak to us. God, that you would use your word to guide us and instruct us and to build us up in our holy faith and, of course, to make us like our Lord Jesus Christ. God, none of us are who we ought to be perfectly or in its entirety yet. God, all of us are being conformed into the image of Christ and we pray that you would continue that great work of making us into the men and the women that you desire us to be. So God, would you bless us now we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. Please be seated. It is great to worship with all of you, as Ryan was just saying. It's such a joy to sing songs of praise together and be able to fellowship with one another every single Sunday as a local body of believers. On Sunday afternoons, during this time of the year, one of my Things that I enjoy personally doing is sitting down on the couch with my sons and watching some college football. A couple of weekends ago, after a really big game, I think it was a huge upset game, it was either that or just a big rivalry game, we were watching it and 
all the fans jumped down over the wall and came on the field and they were rushing the field and we're watching this happen and one of my sons noticed that as the head coach of the winning team was walking across the field, he had a bunch of police officers around him. My son was confused. He said, dad, why are there police at this football game right now? I said, well, it's crowd control, son. The police are there to protect this coach from the crowd because all of these people are rushing onto the field right now and that could be a little bit dangerous for this coach. He could get overrun by all of these excited fans. And it was a reminder that at times a big crowd can be a dangerous thing. Especially if you've got a big crowd who is filled with emotion and filled with excitement and enthusiasm. This is sort of what we're observing here this morning in the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 3. Jesus here at this point in his earthly ministry is literally in danger of being crushed by an overly enthusiastic and excited crowd. Now our passage begins not with the crowd ready to crush Jesus, it gets there, But it begins with Jesus attempting in the first place to withdraw with his disciples, to be alone with his disciples. You'll see that beginning right there again in verse 7. The gospel author Mark writes this. He says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So Jesus is withdrawing at this moment in his ministry. And so we need to ask ourselves, who is he withdrawing from or what is he withdrawing from? And the answer is this. And if you back up into the verses ahead of this, which we talked about last Sunday, Jesus had just healed a man who had a withered hand in the synagogue in Capernaum on the, on the Sabbath day. And after he healed them, here's what verse 6 tells us happened next. It says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So Jesus is likely now getting his disciples and he's withdrawing from these Pharisees and the scribes who are hell-bent on destroying him now. They want to kill him. Possibly he's also trying to get a little bit of respite from the massive crowds that have been growing and swelling in the city of Capernaum. But the crowd we find is not far behind. Yes, Jesus attempts to withdraw with his disciples to the sea, But we read there that a great crowd followed. Three times in this passage, we're going to hear of the crowd. Two times the crowd is going to be called a great crowd. So Mark, he wants us to take notice now of this great crowd. While it is true that Jesus and the religious establishment in Israel at this point keep butting heads with each other. And they're at odds with each other. It is also true that among the common people, Jesus is becoming incredibly famous, incredibly liked. He's become a star. We learn here that his fame is spreading in in an ever-widening circle beyond even the boundaries of Israel. People are coming to Jesus here, we read in verses 7 and 8, from all of the surrounding regions. I want to show you a map here on the screen just to give you a sense of what Mark is trying to show us. And I know this is a little bit small on that screen, You won't be able to read anything, but that's okay. I'll just point a couple of things out to you. Up toward the kind of top of the map, not the very high circle, but the one under it, I did that one in black. The other ones are in gray. Now that I think about it, you probably can't really notice that. 
The one in black is meant to indicate the region of Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus is currently at. He's at the Sea of Galilee. This is where he's doing ministry at this point, uh, at this point in time. So he's there in Galilee at the sea. But Mark tells us that people have come to him now from Judea, which is the circle below Galilee. That region right there is Judea. In the center, do we have a pointer going? Man, problem solved. Way to go, Ty. So that's Judea, and there's a little rectangle in there. That's Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Israel. That is in Judea. So he says they're coming from Judea. They're coming from Jerusalem. Then he says they're coming from Idumea, which is underneath Judea. It's down in the desert, actually. People are coming from below Israel all the way up to Galilee to meet with Jesus. He also says that people are coming from beyond the Jordan. The Jordan, I have a little thin blue line that goes from Galilee to Judea. Help them out, Ty. You see the little blue line goes vertical? That's the River Jordan, okay? River Jordan goes down. People are coming from the east of the Jordan, a region called the Decapolis. It's 10 cities over there, probably even beyond that. So they're making their way to Galilee. And then finally in the northwest on the coast is Tyre and Sidon. Again, these aren't even officially parts of Israel but what Mark is communicating to us by listing all of these locations is you can see that there's this convergence of people from every direction. Jesus's fame is spreading throughout the land. Everybody's hearing about the things that he's doing and the people can't get enough. So they're coming to ground zero of the ministry of Jesus and they're wanting to connect with him. He's become very very popular. And again, Mark wants us to see that the crowds are getting massive. And I think for a lot of us, particularly in America, when we think about ministry, we often equate crowds with success. If you've got big crowds, that must be a positive sign. In fact, it's not just in ministry. I think in a lot of ways, we tend to think of crowds as an indicator that things are going well. Like if you open a brand new restaurant, and the place is packed out, and there's an hour-long waiting list, people would go, oh my gosh, they're killing it. If a musician has a concert and the venue completely sells out, everybody says, oh, they've made it, they've arrived. Or again, to go back to a ministry context, if a church is overflowing their parking lots and they're in need of a, a building expansion project, we tend to usually conclude that God must be blessing them. Again, we see crowds generally as a sign of success. But like the example of the football game, big crowds are not always a blessing. And the way that Mark writes this paragraph of scripture sort of tips us off to the fact that the big crowds around Jesus at this point in his ministry actually are not a blessing. What we see in this passage before us is this, and it's the title of today's sermon. Jesus desires more than a crowd. Jesus desires more than a crowd. In this first paragraph that we're studying, we're going to see together the problem with the crowd. This is in verses 7 through 12. We're going to look together at the problem with the crowd. And really there's two main issues with this crowd that Mark is drawing our attention to. The first is this. The crowd is there for the wrong reason. The crowd is there for the wrong reason. 
Now, their reason is not entirely bad or evil. It's just not the ultimate reason why they should be coming to Jesus. See, what we find in this passage is that these great crowds are coming to Jesus looking for not salvation from their sins, not a restored relationship with God. No, no, no. They're coming to Jesus because they want healing. We read this in verse 8. When the crowd heard all that he was noticed doing, as opposed to teaching or preaching, when the crowd had heard all that he was doing, namely healing people, they came to him. Then verse 10 tells us that he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So you can see the picture here. It's a crowd of people who are in need, a crowd of people who have physical maladies and problems. And they're saying, we've heard of what Jesus has been doing in Capernaum. How he's healing people of withered hands. How he's healing lepers. How he's healing paralytics. I want to go and get a physical healing as well. And so we find that the crowd is here for their physical well-being and not so much their spiritual well-being. I would caution us, though, on being too hard on the crowd. I think if we're honest, we're probably, even as Christians, a lot more like the crowd than maybe we're first aware of. And one of the ways we could, I think, assess that and see that is just by analyzing our own prayer lives. As I sat this week and thought a little bit more critically about my prayer life, and by that I mean, like, what is the content of my prayer life? I have to confess to you that if I look at my standard prayers, the vast majority of the things that I'm praying about are physical in nature, and very few things oftentimes are spiritual in nature. I mean, how often, how much of my prayer time is spent in confession? How much of it is spent in thanksgiving or in repentance? Or in prayer for strength against temptation? And how does that stack up against how often I'm praying for physical needs? Money in the bank. Physical healing for somebody. Problems that are going on. Now, the physical needs do matter. We need to be clear about that. Jesus does teach us in the Lord's Prayer to pray to our Father, give us this day our daily bread. So as Christians, we don't minimize the place for our, spiritual, or for our physical needs being met by God. But again, if you look at the Lord's Prayer, which is a model for all of our prayer, that's the only line that relates to our physical needs. Every other line in the Lord's Prayer is spiritual in nature. It's adoration. It's a prayer about God's kingdom and not our kingdom and God's will and not our will. Yes, give us this day our daily bread so there's physical But then it's about forgiveness. Then it's about, Lord, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then finally, it's another adoration or praise about his power, his kingdom, his glory, etc. So we see the strong emphasis in the way that Jesus teaches us to pray about spiritual matters. Things that are eternally significant. And yet so often, we, like the crowd, are so fixated on just our physical needs. Now, this fact that they're coming to Jesus for healing does help to explain to us why Jesus has become such a star. I mean, if you go back 2,000 years when medical care was very primitive, if you knew that there was a person who, at least so it seemed, could heal anybody of anything, that person would become very famous very quickly. 
And so as these stories are spreading in the ancient world that Jesus is again healing lepers, he's healing people that are paralyzed, it's no surprise that people are willing to travel from miles and miles around to come and meet with Jesus. But again, the first reason here, the first problem with the crowd is that they're here for the wrong reason. The second issue with the crowd is that the crowd is becoming a danger. Notice in verse 9 that the crowds nearly crushed Jesus. It says this, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So the idea was either that Jesus wanted the disciples to have a small boat right on hand next to him on the shore in case he needs to escape onto it if the crowd gets too close and is pushing on him too much. Or the idea might have just been, go get me a boat and I'm just going to start there. I'm going to stand on a boat and just preach and teach right here from the seashore. But it seems like it's probably the first idea because we do read that many people are coming and experiencing healing. But notice they're becoming a danger because they almost crush him. The second issue, though, is that the crowds nearly expose him. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God, verse 12. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So notice that among the crowd, there are many people who are actually demon-possessed. And as these people are approaching him in the crowd, these spirits, these demonic spirits that are in these people are actually crying out to Jesus and they're identifying him as the son of God. And interestingly, Jesus says, hey, don't say that. He silences them. Now, why would Jesus be silencing these demons from making this true statement about his identity? Well, likely the idea is that Jesus, as we've been learning together, is very much now under the microscope of both the religious leaders and the political leaders now. And so Jesus knows that if this, if this claim that he's the son of God begins to catch on, it might be too much. And so Jesus is saying, it's not time for my full identity to be revealed writ large. Right now, I need to actually reveal myself to my own disciples And help them to grasp who I am. And so he tells these demons to be quiet. But again, the crowds here are actually becoming problematic for for Jesus. Again, they are there for the wrong reasons. And they're actually endangering him and the mission that he seeks to accomplish. Now, as readers, when the demons say that Jesus is the son of God, that doesn't take us by surprise. Because Mark has already told us that much in his introduction. Back in Mark 1.1, we read this. He wrote, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So again, as readers, we already know that this is who Jesus is. But significantly, nobody in the story has yet figured that out until now. This is the first time anybody connects the dots and announces that Jesus is actually the Son of God And how telling that the first ones to affirm it are none other than the demons. It was the demons who were able to see what the people could not yet see. Namely, the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth. During his earthly life, his deity was veiled with human flesh. But the demons knew who he truly was. 
They knew that he was more than just a man. They knew that this Jesus was actually the God-man. And therefore, they just surrender without even a fight. When they encounter Jesus, notice that there's no contest. Again, in verse 11, it just says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out. It's a wonderful picture of the authority of Jesus. Of the exalted state of Jesus that no matter who the demon was, who the demon had possessed, when that demon encountered Jesus of Nazareth, they just fell down and surrendered. They cried, uncle. They said, you're the son of God. And friends, their response, falling down before Jesus on their knees and declaring him to be the son of God is actually a preview of what every single creature is going to do at the return of Christ when we actually behold Jesus for who he truly is. See, the reason the crowds weren't falling down and trembling before Jesus and confessing his identity is because, again, much of his identity was veiled in human flesh at this point in history. But we're told in the scriptures that at the return of Christ, we're going to see him for who he truly is. Here's what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we see him for who he truly is, Every single person is going to bow their knee to the Son of God. And we are going to confess that that is, in fact, who he is. I think it is important for us to note before we move on that although these crowds did come to Jesus for reasons that were less than what Jesus ultimately had to offer, our Lord doesn't blow them off. He doesn't just go, oh, you just want healing, get out of here. I'm not interested in you. No, no, no. We do read in verse 10 that he healed many. And evidently in verse 11, there were lots and lots of demon-possessed people who were experiencing deliverance as they met Jesus on this seashore. And so while Jesus desires more than what the crowds were looking for, this text does remind us that the heart of Christ is so kind, it's so generous, it's so benevolent, that he brings blessing to them by meeting the only needs that they were even able to sense. And it reminds us here of God's benevolence, God's graciousness to all people. Theologians will call this God's common grace. And it refers to the fact that every single person who has ever lived, whether they love Jesus or hate him, experiences many good blessings from from a benevolent God. The fact that they have the gift of life. The fact that they get to have relationships and experience love and joys, that they have food on the table and clothes on their body, that they find purpose and meaning in their lives. The fact that every single person gets to delight in a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset. All of that is just evidence of the kindness of the heart of God. The benevolence of the heart of God. And according to Romans 2.4, God's kindness is actually meant to lead us to repentance. We're supposed to trace back all of the good things that God gives us to the Lord and say, God, I want to give you my whole life. Look how good you are. Look how awesome you've been to me. 
But how tragic that for so many, they'd rather bite the hand that feeds them than bless the hand that feeds them. No wonder the very next verse in Romans 2, this is verse 5, says this. Paul writes, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's heavy. Okay, so we've seen together now the problem with the crowd. But verse 13 is going to mark a shift now in the gospel of Mark. Because from this moment forward, we're actually going to see Jesus' focus narrow from the crowds who he's been very pleased to minister to. We're going to see his focus now begin to narrow in on his disciples, who he's going to take very special interest in as he trains and disciples them for ministry. Let's read verses 13 through 15. It says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So in this second paragraph that we're looking at together here today, we now see the appointing of the twelve. The appointing of the twelve. Now, Mark doesn't tell us this, but in Luke's gospel... We learn that Jesus actually went on the mountain and he spent all night in prayer to the Father before he selects these 12 who he's going to call apostles. And what this means is that this moment in the ministry of Christ is full of significance. We need to see it that way. There's something very significant going on at this moment in Christ's ministry. Notice, though, that he appoints the twelve first from a larger group of disciples. We see that there in verse 13. He calls to himself those whom he desires. They come to him. And then he appoints twelve. So there's this larger group of disciples. We don't know how many disciples Jesus has at this time. But there's this larger group on the mountain. And what does it say about them? It says that they've been called by Jesus. And it says that they are those who he desired. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, just stop and think about that. These disciples are those whom Jesus desired. I mean, every person desires to be desired, right? Like, we all want to be wanted. We all want to be loved. And we really want that from somebody who's amazing. That would be preferable, for sure. Some of us are like, I'll settle for anything at this point. But we all want to be loved, We all want to be desired. We all want to be wanted. And yet we're reading here that these disciples are desired by Jesus. I mean, to be desired by Jesus. To know in your heart that God himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth, God himself desires you. I mean, could anything be more dignifying or uplifting? And we need to sit with that, this idea that Jesus actually desires and delights in those who are his disciples. These people were desired by Jesus, but we know from the scriptures that that's true, not just of his first followers. It's true of every single disciple of Jesus. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. He's saying, listen, You didn't pick me. 
I wanted you. I chose you. I picked you. In 1 John 4, 19, we read, we love because he first loved us. So, so the relationship that you have with God, if you're a Christian, is one of response, not initiation. God loved you. God chose you. God called you. And if you're a Christian, you responded to that call. He initiated it. He looked at you and he said, I love you. I desire you. I want you to be with me. And he called you to himself. If you're a Christian, the reason you are is because Jesus Christ, God incarnate, desires you. And he called you. And so you can rest in his love. You can rest in the fact that you are wanted and you belong to him. With this language, though, of calling and the disciples responding, we're reminded of the first five disciples that we see Jesus call in Mark's gospel. We're talking about Simon and his brother Andrew, James and his brother John, and then, of course, Levi, the tax collector, who's also called Matthew. In each of those stories that we saw in chapters one and two, it was the same thing. Jesus sought them out. They weren't looking for Jesus. He sought them out. He called them and they responded. They dropped everything to follow Jesus. And again, that's the very same thing we see here with these disciples. It says that he desired them. It says that he called them. And then in the end of verse 13, it says, and they came to him. That's the way it works for every single Christian. And so these are things that are true of all of the disciples on the mountain that day. Jesus desired them. He called them and they came. But we find that Jesus here then goes and he isolates a smaller group, a group of 12. And this decision marks a very important development in the ministry of Jesus because at this point, Jesus now begins to multiply his ministry. Instead of Jesus just doing ministry and loving people and serving people and healing people and preaching, Jesus now makes an intentional decision to multiply his ministry. He hand-selects a team that he is going to personally and intentionally disciple and train so that they can do what he does. What are they called? Avengers. No, it's apostles. It's close, but it's actually apostles. So he assembles a group of apostles. What does that mean? Well, an apostle is just simply a sent one. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from what Jesus commissioned them to do. Look at verse 14. You'll notice that there's a twofold task given to these apostles, these disciples of Jesus. And here's what it says. It says, so that they might be with him and he might send them out. So there's a twofold calling here or commissioning. The first is this, so that they might be with him. Notice that in the first place, Jesus is saying, I want to set you 12 apart to be with me. These 12 are going to spend almost 24-7, 365 with Jesus for the next two and a half to three years. They will travel with him. They will lodge with him. They will eat with him. They will see him in action every single day. They will pray together with him. They'll study the scriptures with him. They'll sing with him. They'll enter synagogue with him. They're with Jesus 24-7. Jesus says, here's what I'm calling you to do. Be with me. 
Later, he's going to use the language of abide in me as he talks about the relationship of disciples to himself. So he says he wants them to be with him. And through this deep communion, this daily intimacy with Jesus, they are going to learn from him and they're going to become like him. The second part of their new occupation is this, that he might send them out. So yes, they're going to be with him. But they're also going to be sent away from him from time to time to do something. And what are they sent out to do? Well, verses 14 and 15 tell us, number one, it's to preach in verse 14. Number two, it's to have authority to cast out demons in verse 15. So notice Jesus is saying, I'm I'm appointing you 12 to preach and to cast out demons. And so I'm going to be giving you my message and I'm going to be giving you my power. Who has been driving demons out so far in the gospel of Mark? Jesus. Who has been preaching the gospel of the kingdom so far in the gospel of Mark? Jesus. But now Jesus is saying, my message and my power are going to be with you. I'm giving it to you. Now later in chapter 6, when these 12 actually begin to be sent out, we also find that they went around healing a bunch of people. So put that all together and we're realizing that what Jesus is sending them out to do is he's sending them out to preach the gospel, to heal people, and to cast out demons. The exact same things Jesus has been doing. He's been preaching the gospel, he's been healing, and he's been casting out demons. Sometimes being a disciple of Jesus is explained this way. It's being with Jesus, it's becoming like Jesus, And it's doing what Jesus did. Again, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And this is what these apostles are being called into. They're going to be with him. They'll become like him. And they're going to start doing the very things that he himself did. And of those things, notice with me in verse 14, that just like Jesus, their greatest priority is going to be what? Anybody see it there in verse 14? What's the, what's the greatest priority that they're going to have there? Man, that's a really, really tough classroom. Nobody wants to talk to the teacher today. Preaching, there we go. Don't be scared. Even if you get it wrong, I won't make fun of you, I promise. I must have a bad reputation here. Their greatest priority, just like Jesus that we learned about, their focus, their emphasis will be preaching the good news of the kingdom. See, after Jesus' death and his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, it is through these men, first and foremost, that the good news of the gospel will spread throughout the world. In Acts 1.8, we learn that they are his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. In Ephesians 2.20, we learn that the church would be built upon the foundation of of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So they are the ones who will be the witnesses. They're the ones who are going to preach the gospel throughout the world. But notice also that just like their master, their preaching ministry will be accompanied with signs, powerful signs and wonders. They're going to heal people. We read about that in the book of Acts. They're going to drive demons out. We read about that as well. They have supernatural gifts. And those gifts, just like they functioned in Jesus' life, are going to function for the apostles in a way that they're going to validate their message. 
And that they're going to demonstrate to the people that, hey, these people really do belong to Jesus and they do have his message and they have his authority. And so because of that, there is a very real sense in which these 12 men are unique in church history. Friends, there is no one who can rightly be called an apostle of Jesus in the same sense as them. They're unique. They and they alone were eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus. Nobody today can say that. They saw his ministry, they saw him crucified, they saw him rise from the dead. Their teaching and their teaching alone is recorded for us in Holy Scripture and is the infallible word of God. Never to be repeated. There is no new revelation coming. Okay? So when the Mormon church tells us that they have another testament of the Lord Jesus Christ, we go, no, that's not right. That's not true. The apostles were unique in human history. They were the eyewitnesses. They were the ones that received divine revelation from the Holy Spirit, which became part of God's sacred scripture. And they and they alone are the foundation that the early church and the church for all time was built upon. We read that in Ephesians 2.20. And so if you're new here today and you thought this church was called apostles, because we believe that we're modern day apostles, I'm very happy to disappoint you. That is not where our name comes from. We're called Apostles Church not because we fancy ourselves as apostles like the 12, but because we're a body of believers who are devoted to the apostles' teaching like Acts 2.42 talks about. But I digress. So these 12 are unique. And yet, even though they're unique, guys, there are many respects in which the apostles serve as patterns and models for every disciple of Jesus. We too are called to be with Jesus. We're called to become like Jesus. And we are called to do what Jesus did. We're called to be with Jesus. How are we with Jesus today? Well, it's through the presence of his spirit which dwells inside each and every one of us. And Jesus called it abiding in him. Jesus desires relationship with every single follower of his. And so we as disciples organize our lives in such a way that we can be present with Jesus. So we're to be with Jesus. We also know we're to become like Jesus. In this relationship that we have with Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are being shaped into his very image. Romans chapter 8 talks about that. Here's 2 Corinthians 3.18, which also talks about it. Paul here writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of the Lord. From one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we are to be with Jesus, and as we're with him and abiding in him, we're becoming like him, we're being transformed into his very image, and lastly, we are called to do what Jesus did. You and I are called to preach the gospel, and we're called to make disciples and love our neighbors. Here's the great commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end 
of the age. So we're called to go out and preach the gospel and make disciples just like Jesus himself is doing. Now as Christians, we oftentimes can emphasize one aspect of discipleship and minimize another. I mean, there are some who are all about being with Jesus, but they have no interest in doing the things that Jesus did. They love Bible study. They love prayer. They love all the spiritual disciplines, fasting. They love coming to church. They love being in a home group. They love all of that stuff where it's just kind of intake, 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 and abiding and abiding and abiding. But the second anybody talks about serving the Lord or sharing your faith with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, they're not, they're not down for that. They're not interested in that. It's all about being with him but failing to actually serve him. So again, the moment that it's about sharing the gospel or serving the needy or sorting, supporting financially or discipling others, that's where their discipleship ends. But there are others who are all about serving Jesus, but they fail to actually be present with Jesus, to abide in Christ. And so they're the first ones that are happy to roll up their sleeves on a church work day or to go meet other needs, or they're happy to tell other people what it looks like to follow Jesus and go share the gospel and hand out Bibles places and take on a discipleship group and lead a home study. But if you look at their prayer life and their time in the word and their commitment to just sitting in the presence of the Lord, there's really not much to be said there. Discipleship is meant to be both. We are meant to be with him abiding in him and serve him. Do the things that Jesus did. And so we as Christians, if we want to be healthy, integrated disciples, we have got to emphasize both. We have to do it all. Now, the fact that the 12 only have their names listed, well, in the case of the first three, they also have their name changes listed here. But everybody's names are just listed here rather than anything that they've done That tells us that what this passage is about is actually not them per se. The passage is about what Jesus is doing in setting them apart. And so there's no sense in us this morning trying to dig deeper into the lives and the stories of all 12 apostles and think more deeply about what they were doing. We'll get to that as each of these guys get introduced later in the gospel story. For now, what we're meant to see is that in choosing these 12 men, Jesus was doing something very significant. Like I already said, he's multiplying his ministry, but it's more than that. The number 12 is extremely significant. Some of you have probably already been noticing this. Every Jew knew how many tribes there 